0: A gospel lesson for this evening is found in Mark chapter 14. We'll begin reading in verse 26 and be reading through verse 50. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, "'Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times.' But he said emphatically, "'If I must die with you, I will not deny you.' And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, "'Sit here while I pray.' And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled." And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed. If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him, and they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled and they all left him and fled." This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Let's pray. Father, as we hear your word tonight, we ask that you would grant us your spirit, that we might hear and understand, and that you might apply these great truths to our lives. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Imagine the entire country is of one opinion, and you are the lone dissenting voice. It was the case for the 67-year-old grandmother from Chicago. Her name was Joanne Chakalis. Joanne was a juror, if you remember the case of Rob Blagojevich, the governor of Illinois. She was given the duty of being one of the 12 people who would determine whether he was guilty or not. Blagojevich was accused of selling the vacated Senate seat of Barack Obama. The FBI had tapes of him, many hours of tapes of him, and many people thought he was guilty. He had squirmed on talk shows. He had managed never to give a clear answer, and then he went on The Apprentice, and Donald Trump even fired him. Blagojevich had no friends. Everyone thought He had done it. He was guilty. And yet, Joanne believed he wasn't. Now, in an interview, she says he was full of hot air. He was full of himself. She said he said a great number of things in the transcripts from the FBI. But she said, I just don't think it ever rose to the matter where he actually sold the seat, that he never actually made that offer. She said he was annoying but he wasn't guilty. And so Joanne stood alone. She was threatened. She was intimidated. She was bullied. She was threatened to be even thrown in jail. And she stood by herself on her conviction that he was innocent. But why does someone stand alone? When you're going against that great a tide, is it tenacity? Tenacity? is it stupidity? Is it just stubbornness? Is it ignorance? Or is it perhaps a virtue? What motivates people to stand alone? It's an important question for us tonight, because here in Mark 14, we find Jesus standing alone. After celebrating a Passover meal of sorts with his disciples, they go out to the garden, to the Mount of Olives, where they had spent many hours before And Jesus is then betrayed. And His disciples, despite all their protests that they would never leave Him, they all act in one voice and leave Him. It's the first time the church has ever acted in unity on anything, was deserting Jesus. And at the end, He is in the hand of the people who will kill Him. He's alone. So why does He stand alone? Is it tenacity? Is it stupidity? Is it stubbornness, is it ignorance, or is it a virtue? Whatever the motivation, one thing that happens when someone stands alone on their convictions is that it is a revelatory moment. It reveals at least two things. It reveals something about the person. We learn something about them and what they stand for as they stake themselves in the ground. But we also learn a great deal in that revelatory moment about those around, about those who are surrounding. And so important, it's important for us to ask tonight, what does God reveal to us in the Garden of Gethsemane? What do we learn about ourselves as Jesus stands alone? There's two things that we see tonight. The first is this, is that we see the insufficiency of our strength for life within the kingdom. The insufficiency of our strength for life within the kingdom. Now the disciples had all sworn that they would be faithful to Jesus. Peter says, even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus says, no, you will. And He says, no, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And yet when we arrive in the garden, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. James and John had said in chapter 10 that they could drink Jesus' cup. Jesus says, I'm not sure you can. They say, no, we are able. And Peter had just protested that he would never deny Jesus. And so Jesus takes these three. He takes them deeper into the garden. He moves past them and begins to pray, and he asks them to wait and keep watch. They were to stay awake. It's very similar to the command that Jesus gives at the end of his sermon in Mark 13, where he tells the church to stay awake as they await Jesus's return. And so it's more than just not falling asleep. It's some kind of vigilance that Jesus is calling his disciples to in the face of incredible evil and suffering and the coming of the kingdom, the breaking in of the kingdom into the world. And yet the disciples doze off. Despite all their protest, that they wouldn't deny Jesus, they fall asleep. They're asleep at the wheel. Jesus comes back and asks the question, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? It's interesting here in our translation where it says, could you not the word that lies behind these words is the one for strength, and it could also aptly be translated is, were you not strong enough to watch for one hour? You may ask, well, why do you make that point? It's because the word for strong is used several times throughout the Gospel of Mark. We learn in chapter 1 that John the, as John the Baptist proclaims that the Christ was coming, he says, there is one stronger than I who is coming. Then in chapter 3, Jesus speaks of the strong man. And if you're going to to plunder the strong man's house, you must be stronger. And we see in chapter 5 then that there was a man who was possessed by a legion of demons. And in verse 4, Mark tells us that no one was strong enough. But then Jesus comes and tames him. And Mark builds the case that there's incredible strength in the world, but there is one who is mightier. There is one who is stronger. And Jesus asked his disciples, Were you not strong enough to watch one hour? And friends, they had been self sufficient. They had thought they were strong enough. They had protested that they would never leave Jesus. They were smug in their self confidence. And yet in this great, dramatic hour where the evil forces of the world are pressing in and the redemptive plan of God is about to work itself out, the disciples collapse. Jesus says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And this is the point, is that when we trust in our own strength, we actually will find ourselves in utter ruin. This is what the disciples were doing, is they were not trusting the one who alone could be their sufficient strength. They were not looking to Jesus to sufficiently supply them with strength. They thought they could do it under their own steam. And they end up running. They end up turning. And friends, for life in the kingdom where Jesus commands us to stay awake and be vigilant in His service, that we can't serve Him under our own steam, that actually it calls us to find the place of weakness where we know absolute need, and we call out to the one who is strong, the one who is mightier, the one who tames the incredible host of evil in the world and conquers over it, the strong man. When we look to Jesus in that kind of faith, that is when His strength is sufficient for us. We're only strong trusting in Jesus' sufficiency. It's the first thing we see in this garden moment. And the second is we see that our strength subverts the way of the kingdom. That when we bring our strength to play, what we think should work and what we think is powerful, that it actually turns the kingdom of God upside down. You'll notice what Peter does. Jesus is betrayed by Judas with the kiss. And in verse 47, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Peter is probably behind the writing of the Gospel of Mark. Church tradition tells us Peter doesn't own up to this, but John 18 tells us that it was Peter who pulls out his sword. He attempts to defend Jesus. He's probably smarting from the correction he just received, and so now he's going to do something noble for Jesus. He's going to stand for him. But do you see what's so wrong? Jesus has just told us in Mark chapter 10 that his kingdom doesn't come according to the power and the authority of man, that it doesn't work that way. That his kingdom is built on self-sacrifice. It's not built on violence. It's one of peace. And Peter has just acted in his own strength, according to his own wisdom, and taken matters into his own hands. And so while it may appear to be some affection for Jesus, it completely misunderstands the nature of God's kingdom and how his kingdom comes into the world. And, friends, when we're left to our own strength, when we're self sufficient, we operate on our own wisdom, and we face the incredible power of evil in our world, we're just like the disciples. We run. We'll be of the flesh, it's just weak. Our strength is not sufficient, it's not strong enough, it can't get it done. And so that's why we find Jesus being left alone. His disciples were still fleshly. They didn't get his kingdom message still. And Jesus is completely and utterly abandoned there in the garden. And so we said that when someone stands on their convictions, it's a revelatory moment. It reveals something about those around, but it also reveals something about the one who stands upon their convictions. And so what does Jesus standing in the garden reveal about Him? What is being communicated to us through this story about who Jesus is? Jesus says, He draws near in the garden. He says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Mark has used extreme language saying that He was greatly distressed and troubled. He fell on the ground. He prayed and listened to his prayer. Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. It's interesting. Jesus picks up the language of cup. And people will ask well, where does this come from? Why does he suddenly talk about his impending death as a cup? It seems that Jesus is picking up on a theme from Isaiah 51. We know that these chapters of Scripture were deeply embedded into Jesus' sense of calling as He entered into His last days, particularly chapter 53. Chapter 51 speaks of a cup that God's people had been drinking. It was a cup of wrath and punishment for wrongdoing. And in Isaiah 51 verses 17 through 23, it then says that God will transfer the cup that His people have been drinking and He'll transfer it to their enemies and they will drink the cup and they will stagger under the judgment of God. The wrath of God will be poured out on the enemies of God's people. Do you see what Jesus has done with that passage? It's provocative. It's not that the cup is going to be transferred to the enemies. But Jesus himself is taking the cup from God's people, and he's drinking it down to the dregs himself. He is taking down the wrath of God into himself. And friends, this is why Jesus is sorrowing unto death. It's not just that he's he's scared to die, but he knew what he faced, that he was facing an outpouring of God's wrath That it was being centered and focused on him. That he would die a death for the many. That by his wounds, thousands and millions from the nations would be healed and reconciled to God. And he was going to bear the full brunt and weight of that. That's the, the distress that Jesus feels And friends, it's only because Jesus bears this weight. He was left alone because he alone could bear it. And because one has borne it, when we put our faith in him and our trust is hung up into him, his righteous sufferings take away our sins. Paul says it like this, that he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That that's what's revealed about Jesus. is his calling, his vocation from God to suffer on behalf of the many, to reconcile us to God. He's representative for us all. He's substitute for us all. He takes the cup and drinks it. He was the last man standing Because he was ultimately the only one who could stand. He was in a garden because he was undoing another deed done in a garden. And he was bringing it to naught that God's reign could be reconciled to the earth, that we can be reconciled to God. That's what all the tragedy and horror of this night is about. Because Jesus has done the unthinkable, he stood alone. And he stood in our place. And so friends, tonight as we continue in worship, this is what we somberly celebrate. Remembering the awful tragedy of our world. It's complete and utter brokenness. The tragedy of our own hearts. Our sinfulness. And yet what God has done to remedy that. And so we come taking bread and wine, celebrating Jesus' death on our behalf as his first disciples did that night. And we come giving thanks to him that he stood for us